What is it about? Computational communication science. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. Welcome to a new episode of What is it about computational communication science? My name is Mario Heim. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Leipzig for data journalism and computational communication research. And today we tackle the question, how come data needs the social sciences? Welcome to this amazing episode. My name is Emesha Domahide. I'm an assistant professor for computational communication science, and I'm very happy that today we have an amazing guest. Walter van Adefeld is joining us. Hi, Walter. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you. So Walter is an associate professor at the Freie Universität Amsterdam. He is at the Department of Communication Science, and it is very much interested in political communication and journalism. He is known as the author of various papers on computational communication science, for example, in the journal Communication Methods and Measures. He was a guest editor of a special issue on computational communication science in the same journal, and he is editor-in-chief of the journal Computational Communication Research. This sounds amazing, and indeed it is. So, Walter, let's start. How come the data needs the social sciences? And where does the hype about the computational social sciences come from at the moment? Right, those are uh, those are two very good questions, uh, Amesha. Thank you for that. I guess, why do data need the social sciences if we personify data to the extent that it has needs and desires? Um, I think Laser put it very well in his uh, Life in the Network article already, what is it, 15 years ago, where he basically said that um, computational social science is happening and it will happen, but it was at that point mostly happening in companies like Facebook, um, but also at, uh, for example, the NSA um, and probably at other intelligence agencies and, and all kind of institutions that had um, very interesting questions, uh, maybe not the kind of ethics and scruples we would like to see, but also much better computational resources and access to the data um, than we did and probably than we, we still do. So. In a way, if the social sciences don't go rescue the data um, from the evil clutches of uh, Facebook and the like, then we will get answers to questions like how can we make sure everybody buys this product or looks at this advertisement, but we won't get answers to questions like um, does Facebook uh, help uh, political communication or does it cause polarization? Do people become uh, better at, at finding friends and getting connected or do people become more lonely? Um, how can we make sure that that's media technology and internet technology works to the good of mankind rather than only for the goods of Facebook um, or the NSA. But then you, you mentioned that this this paper, this uh, seminal paper that came out in 2007 or nine or something. So why is it still such an ongoing hype to some extent? Right, that, that's, a, that's, I guess, the second part of the question. Um, in a way, it has becoming a hype, I think, mostly within the social sciences because we are finally getting access to the kind of data we need and the computational resources we need. I think when, when I started, so, so I did my PhD in 2004, I completed it in 2008. Um, I didn't even know computational social science was a thing back then, um, but I did know that I was one in a way. But it was, I was one of the few, right? There weren't a lot of people specialized in looking at computational techniques. And now there are so many great people um, like yourselves, but like so many people working in this subfield, it is becoming normal to to learn about computational techniques in your education, etc. So the social sciences finally have the tools to actually start asking questions to the data. 
And in a thing, in a way, I think the hype that you mentioned might already be passed in that, like five five years ago, maybe everybody was writing about it without maybe knowing too much about it. And it was overhyped in the sense that, that there were a lot of people saying, well, um, data, uh, data science, uh, computational methods are going to solve all our problems. And now we know, of course, that computational science is also bringing us lots of new problems. And that what we really need is good combinations of, of data science, old fashioned methodology and, and good old theory. So we passed the hype cycle to some extent and, and are at a stage of professionalization. That, that sounds perfect. I'll take that. <laughs> Okay, but what what is actually wrong with computer science investigating digital digital data? There is absolutely nothing wrong with computer scientists investigating digital data, and there's also nothing wrong with computer scientists investigating social science data, right? And uh, I wish that that a lot of brilliant computer scientists would move over to our field and start giving us the brilliant analyses we're all longing for. What is what is maybe a point that is often missed here is that social science is actually really hard. Um, and so it's easy to collect a million tweets and it's really easy to to throw some sort of embedding layer or even a topic model uh, if you want to go back to the good old days and and get some data out of or some, some numbers out of your data. Um, but what's really difficult is to understand why people do things they do, right? So why, what causes social behavior? What kind of, um, what kind of, influences um, are they working on us when we are engaging in online behavior, when we're doing politics, what are the institutional constraints, what kind of movements are there, what are the cognitive mechanisms? And these are all really difficult questions. And sometimes what you see is that computer scientists either don't care that much about the questions we have, or they they just are either are un don't know about it or are unwilling to actually go look at what we as social scientists have been doing in the past say 100 years and so what i'm what i would say is that it's, there's nothing wrong with computer scientists um, looking at our data and our questions but just like we can't really expect to simply understand all computer science related stuff and all technology related stuff without putting a huge effort in um, also computer scientists if they want to contribute to to social science they need to put effort in to to understand what social science is about and where we're coming from um, and that's often effort that needs to come from both sides sorry it's for the a long really answer. good point no it's a really good point i would uh, agree absolutely agree with that but then again there is no or is there a social computer science so it's, it's really only us pulling in the computational parts rather than the computer scientists pulling in the social part? Or am I well, missing? I'm, I'm not sure that's true. Um, if you if you look at, at, at computer science conferences, computer science um, uh, proceedings, they are doing a lot of interesting stuff. And, and some of it is also um, high quality uh, stuff. And yeah, prob the problem is, I think, that the, the disciplines are not very well connected yet. So if we publish um, very interesting stuff in computational methods and measures, not a lot of AI experts are going to be reading that. If AI people publish something um, uh, at an AI or computational linguistics conference, not a lot of us are going to be reading that. And also, this, the computational work that we do isn't always reviewed by experts in, in artificial intelligence or computational linguistics. And so a lot of stuff maybe that gets published in our methodology journals um, is not exactly up to snuff in the computational side, right? It, it might not have been published in a, a computational science proceeding. And the reverse is true as well. So if, if a computer scientist does something cool on email that looks cool to other computer scientists, they will probably publish it even if the results are 
maybe trivial um, or even boring um, for a social scientist. But as well, from a social science perspective, I would argue that we struggle as well with the concepts and theories, right? You mentioned before loneliness, for example. So we want to know whether people are lonelier through social media, whatever. So we used to ask these people before, right? So we used to rely on survey data. And now we try to identify, for example, loneliness in digital trace data in some posts. And this is, of course, complex and quite different than what we did before. So I would say we need to yeah, make more advancement here as well and then maybe bring it to the computer sciences, what do you think? So how good are we actually conceptually at computational communication science? Yeah, I, I totally agree, that's a fair point. Um, I'm very far from being an expert on loneliness, so I won't go into that, but if we look at media consumption, for example, um, it's the same, right? I, I do political communication, I'm interested in studying how news affects people's uh, behavior and attitudes. And the first thing we need to know is what news do people actually consume? And we used to just ask people, right? Hey, what newspaper are you subscribed to? That was a very good survey question. Um, it doesn't work anymore, um, at least with people in the younger generations. So we are now trying to use digital trace data to get at the same question. That's like conceptually, that's almost trivial. Um, technically, it should be the easiest question to answer, right? Much easier than loneliness or, or fulfillment or whatever. Um, but still, we're struggling to get very good measurements there um, for all kind of legal, technical, ethical, etc. reasons. Absolutely. Um, and one key challenge there, obviously, is the introduction of a new actor or new actors, right? I mean, there are platforms that um, compile and, and hold these data, Google, Facebook, but also Baidu or Tencent, they, they, they are not necessarily con um, collaborating with us or willing to collaborate with us. So although there is this data out there that would help us identify what news people consume, we don't necessarily have access to that. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's also one of the problems Laser identified 15 years ago. Um, and it's a problem that is still very acute, right? The data that we need isn't here and and there's also not really that much working to get us that data and in a way you could like um really you could go to facebook and ask it very nicely and if you're a well-connected american political scientist you might actually get some data um if you're not um and, or maybe i'm just complaining here but anyway that the key problem is two things i think one is um we're expecting the the social media company to give us the data but they they don't have an interest there so we, we want something from them, but we don't really have a good reason for asking. Twitter just released their academic API, which makes it much easier to get at much more data. And, and, and I'm really grateful for that. And conversely, Facebook has started to sue scientists for pulling the data. So there is a differentiation right. coming yes. up. And that's the problem, right? So I think that's also what, what Adam Smith wrote a long, long time ago, that we, we don't expect the baker to bake bread from the goodness of his heart. So we expect the baker to have bread every morning because that's how he gets his income. And the same way, as long as, as social media companies can get away with um, not providing the data or providing the data at their discretion, it is their choice to do so or not. Um, so I think this is an area that really requires government intervention um, to make sure that, that data rights are established. Where do you see the European Union in that? As the the European Union has always kind of positioned itself between the two extremes of the US and um, the Chinese perspective. Yeah, even though I don't think the Chinese situation is much better, right? I don't think I can get Baidu data or, or whatever, um, or WeChat data. Um, and I vividly remember the scene at one of the ICA conferences where there was this 
Hong Kong professor who had a picture of like 50 mobile phones lying on his desk, each connected to WeChat, trying to scrape the data by remote controlling his 50 mobile phones. Um, so I'm not sure the Chinese situation for social scientists is much better, um, although I'm sure the government has all the data they need. So the European Union, I think, is at least playing the right game here. Um, the GDPR, um, of course, is not aimed at um, scientists, it's aimed at data subjects uh, in general, but at least it gives us a way to get data from the companies. We can at least get our data from Twitter or Facebook or Google. And one of the things we are working hard on is, is uh, what we call social data donation uh, techniques. So asking our respondents to get their data from the various companies and then donate their data to us um, in a very sort of informed consent ethical way. And what I think is great about that is that we're taking the autonomy away from the companies. Um, we're taking the discretionary choice on to collaborate or not away from the companies and putting that back at the respondents uh, where it belongs, I feel. Um, the same way, um, I'm not a legal expert, um, uh, but what I understand from, from the copyrights, uh, new copyright directive is that at least there are some academic exceptions for, for scraping data, which basically says that if you're able to get at the data legally, you're allowed to legally study the data, which sounds almost trivial, but it is a huge step up from um, where things are in the United States, uh, where we have the case of Aaron Swartz, who got sued for scraping the JSTOR archive, and in the end, even tragically, uh, ended up taking his own life over the, the legal proceedings. But many things, had, we're not there yet. Uh, we need a lot more uh, uh, action, I think, on the part of the government. And, and this is key, of course. So we, we don't only need ver to work on the concepts, right? But we need to get better data because, as you said, only the, the size of the data doesn't mean that it's a good data set, a representative data set, and so on. What was? No. Yeah, totally. Um, one great example is is the Facebook mood contagion study that um, probably everybody here knows that I use as one of the greats. Um, negative examples to my students, like this is how it should not be done, where basically the people from Facebook with inside access to all the data were able to run an experiment which, which uh, flagrantly violated the uh, ethical norms and the integrity of the respondents who didn't even knew they were respondents or subjects in the experiments um, without having any sort of idea of what they were doing. Their, 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 their concepts were, uh, were not valid, their measurements were not invalid. Um, everything was wrong with the study. Um, and that's exactly what, what you say, Amesha, if we, and we need both, right? We, we need to bring the people that actually have the conceptual ideas, that know what we're interested in, that know how to actually test stuff. We need to bring them in contact with the right data and the right methodologies. And that's the only way it can go forward. Wouter, you started with uh, referring to the seminal piece some 10 to 15 years ago that was about computational social science. Um, we call ourselves computational communication science. What's the difference? I don't think it's a difference in kind. I think it's purely a difference in, in degree in that computational communication science for me is a subfield of computational social science. And it's a way of saying we are social scientists, we do computational stuff, and we are interested in human communication. So it's a professionalization as compared to What's that? The other computational social sciences are computational political science? Well, some of them, but also sociologists. Um, I suppose anthropologists could fit in there as well with things like digital ethnography. Um, the social science is an incredibly broad field, and sometimes it's good to communicate where you stand. And so we call the journal Computational Communication Research to signal that we are interested in everything computational that studies human communication, the way we, we communicate, um, 
because it becomes incredibly hard if you don't narrow down the field at all um, to, to say what you're interested in. I totally agree. And, and there is there is computational psychology as well. And then there is there is other subfields that kind of carve out their own niche to some extent, right? Yeah, I presume so. Um, I don't know any computational psychologists, unfortunately. Uh, maybe I can get to know them, um, but I'm sure. Um, and you could have, I don't know, computational archaeology as well, presumably. I, I guess the difference to, to computational psychologists is that they're f uh, focusing on methods that we usually don't use that often. Physio uh, methods, for example. Well, we should, right? We should, yeah. There, there are some communication scholars that do that, yeah. but it's not the, the majority of the field, though, um, as opposed to, for example, content analysis. Yeah, although, and, and some things are not that difficult to do, right? Um, some, maybe some psychometrics or um, things like skin conductivity measures should not be too difficult, although it means getting people into your lab again, uh, which is what we were trying to avoid in the first place, maybe. I'm <laughs> um, just getting there. Um, but something like fMRI or techniques like that are an incredibly complex beast by themselves. And I think we need a lot better idea of how the mechanisms we care about connect to to basically the neurological mechanisms happening in our brains. Uh, the headed distance between those is, is pretty far at the moment. Uh, to go from spiral of silence to neurons connecting to other neurons requires a couple steps in between. <laughs> yeah, and maybe maybe a strong collaboration then as well with other fields from social science, right? Because normally we think about collaborating with, computation, uh, with, with communication, no, computer scientists, sorry. The computer scientists, but maybe we should consider as well um, networking more in this uh, computational social science fields, right? Yeah, I, I, I'd say we need to collaborate and network with everyone, right? That sounds a bit trivial, maybe, but but just a, so a communication scientist and a computer scientist can probably answer really interesting questions together. Um, but if you then add a psychologist or a brain expert, you might be able to answer more questions. And I don't think anybody can collaborate with everybody, right? We, we can't all have 27 brilliant collaborations going on. So not, not from my point of view, but <laughs> <laughs> time does tend to run out. huh? <laughs> there's, there's this cliche, though. I think it's a cliche. I'm not sure. I want, want to hear your opinion. Uh, when uh, we are talking about collaboration between computer scientists and communication scientists, um, the, the cliche goes that communication scientists want the methods from computer scientists, whereas computer scientists cannot get much out of this co collaboration because after a question is answered, they're not interested in redoing it, but want to move on. So is that a cliche or what can we give computer science to stay interested in such a collaboration? Right. Well, I'm not sure if it's a cliche, but it's definitely a known problem, right? And very often we don't even really need the methods. We just need somebody who can program. Yeah, yeah, right? that, so that's we're looking worse, for <laughs> That's even worse, right? We're looking for a plumber. We, we have a leakage and we need a plumber. Um, and, and you don't really do like a... So the, the problem is then you're not equals, right, in the collaboration. Um, then there's one demanding party that, that wants, has a problem that wants to get solved, and the other party doesn't care about that problem. Um, and probably the solution is applying some techniques from 20 years from a computational textbook um, to a problem he doesn't care about. Um, and that is never going to be extremely useful. Um, and that's also one reason why just collaborating is not going to be the answer because if you want to collaborate you need to as you say um, also have a question that interests the computer scientists 
And there's lots of cases where that goes well. For example, um, at the moment I'm collaborating on, on news algorithms and recommendation systems. And uh, so a lot of computer scientists are looking at how to improve um, news recommenders so you can recommend the best articles to people to read. Um, but they, they quickly found out that just giving the article that uh, people are most likely to click on might get you short-term profit, but it's also causing a lot of problems, both ethical problems, but also problems of long-term engagement. So uh, what we bring to the table there is both theoretical expertise on what drives people, uh, what kind of cognitive mechanisms affect how people make their news choices, but also the methodology of setting up good experiments on trying to, to flesh out those, those models um, and to get that information there. And then together you come from pretty different angles um, to, to, to approach the same problem, which is really interesting. And there you can have really good collaborations. And I think in, in something like sentiment analysis or stance detection, um, you see the same problems that the sort of the easy sentiment analysis question like, hey, there's a hotel review here. Is it positive or negative? That is sort of solved um, by the computer scientists a while ago. It is not very interesting to them or to us anymore. Um, but if you go from there to asking, um, is this politician um, being positive or negative about an issue? Is there polarization happening on this forum? Then the question becomes much more complicated, also from a theoretical perspective. And you do see that the, the expertise of, of political communication scholars or political scientists can really also help the computer scientists get to a better, uh, better solution there. And as I said, I think this really shows also why as some people say, well, why would I need to learn how to program? Can't I just collaborate with a programmer? And there the problem is that, yes, you can, if your question is interesting enough, but probably a lot of our questions are, or at least some of our questions are, are not at the technical level that interests a computer science professor. So they might interest a first year computer science student, which you can hire. You can't really do that effectively if you don't know what you're doing. So, and that's the reason why I always say we, we don't need all to become programmers or experts, but we do need data literacy and some programming literacy. And of course, the question is as well, without any knowledge about the methods we, we want to use, can we ask interesting questions at all? Right. Totally. Yeah. And that's, that goes both ways, right? If a computer scientist has no clue about American politics, they're not going to ask the right questions to their beautiful corpus of, of, politi of Congress speeches. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and we won't know which kinds of questions we could possibly investigate, right? So we totally miss out um, on this opportunity. I would like to talk a little bit with you about your new book. So there will be a book on computational analysis of communication. And I'm very much looking forward to this book. So what is your focus there? Right. Thanks very much. Yeah. So together with Damian Trilling and, and uh, Carlos Arcilla, we are writing a, a book, a textbook on computational techniques for analyzing communication uh, that should hopefully appear in the next month or so um, at Wiley Blackwell. Um, one of the nice things about the book is that it's also going to be completely open access. So there will be a, a beautiful print version that you can buy and a PDF or ebook version that you can buy. But there is also a website uh, that has the full text and all the code examples um, that is open access. Um, and what we try in that book is to start from basically zero coding skills from maybe a, a master student or an advanced bachelor student um, or a PhD student or faculty member that um, has some um, social science methodological background and interest, but hasn't doesn't have a lot of coding skills yet. And we want to take those people from um, explaining what is computational social science, uh, what is great about it, how can you use it, and then also showing um, sort of the data wrangling skills that you need, the visualization skills, going into um, 
machine learning, text analysis, network analysis, and these things. And of course, that book will not make you a pro programmer or teach you everything you need to know about deep learning, but it will hopefully make you comfortable enough to understand what kind of things are possible, what are the, the right words and techniques to use to either um, then continue um, maybe with more uh, topical textbooks or to start this collaboration um, with this computer science person by asking the right questions and understanding uh, what the person says to you. So it aims at communication uh, science or does it also aim at future industry careers? I would say both. Um, I think a lot of people in journalism and communication science that want to move to industry are going to see that they that having data skills um, is going to help them um, in, on the job market and in their in their profession. And again, not by becoming experts at programming, um, but by becoming the interface maybe to the technical people. So what you see is that there's lots of jobs, not as pure programmers, because uh, at the moment these are often also outsourced um, and there's people that are much better at that than we will ever become. But there's lots of jobs trying to make sense of the data, trying to make sense of the outcomes um, and translating them to, to business decisions um, or, to, or to management. And the ability to understand what's going on, to critically reflect uh, on the sort of methods used and the validity there, I think requires getting your hands dirty and actually getting down to doing stuff with data, um, which is hopefully what uh, the book also allows people to do. That sounds great. Is, is maybe a provocative question is the industry ready for computational communication scholars i'm pretty sure the industry is ready there i have lots of friends and former students who are now professionals that use data skills all the time i think if you look at the industry reports also a lot of them say the future is artificial intelligence the future is data science um and absolutely the, the, there's but, lots of jobs there but if you look at the job market data science to me at least seems to refer a lot to technological rather than social questions yes yeah we aren't data scientists i think in that way and in a way I, i would even see it as a derogatory term because we are we study the human condition right we care about people we don't care about zeros and ones yeah um and what we bring is not that we are better at, at getting some sort of pattern from data we are better at understanding the pattern seeing what it means and translating it into uh, something substantive so then handling data is the crucial skill in this field, right? Yeah, I think handling data is the crucial skill if you want to do social science, computational social science, or if you want to be in, in, in the business side of that. Um, of course, handling data, just handling data, that's what a computer scientist or um, a data scientist can do. Um, and making the connection between the data and the methodology and the theory, that's, that's, what we, that's where we are supposed to shine. Um, but to do that requires uh, understanding what data is and how to handle it. What is data? Who? my God, we're getting philosophical. <laughs> we're, we're only a couple of minutes into the podcast. No, but really, I mean, for, for us, uh, for us as communication scholars by training, data has uh, long been surveys and content, text data, essentially. Right. And now it's still sometimes surveys. It's probably tracking data. Is it still text? What about other forms of content? What's, what's data to us these days? Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question. So I suppose data is is everything that you can squeeze into a computer program that has the potential to tell you something about um, human behavior. So that could be surveys, that could be 
text that people produced um, either as an answer to open survey questions or on Twitter or um, just in everyday life in other ways. Um, and it can also be uh, structured data like followers, uh, follower data on Twitter or Facebook. It can be uh, credit card transactions. Um, it can be website logs. It can even be, even be simulated data, right? Well, right. So I suppose I could run a random number generator and produce numbers and store them and call them data. But so I, I don't really care about the philosophical question of whether a simulation is a experiment or not, right? Whether data needs to come from actual human behavior or whether you can simulate it. I guess in a way, simulated data is more like applied mathematics in that the data isn't empirical. You're not actually going out there to collect data from actual human beings. That said, you can simulate something and, and that can give you insight into social behavior and that makes it a useful technique. And then if you want to call it data, I'm totally fine with calling it data. Another topic that, uh, that you touch in your book and um, did as well write a lot about in a publication in, I think, International Journal of Communication is open science for computational uh, communication science. I think this is, this is a big topic right now and it should be bigger, hopefully, in the future. Um, What do you think? How important is this for scholars and how should we proceed with this topic? I think open science is important for all scientists. And in a way, it is sort of weird that we even need to talk about it, right? Yeah. Um, science has always been about reproduction, has always been about um, a, a show me attitude, right? We don't trust Newton because he was a great guy that wrote nicely. We trust him because we can reproduce what he did and see for ourselves. And that has always been what differentiates science from uh, a lot of other fields like uh, maybe religion, uh, but probably better not to go there. Um, but in a way, science is about you not convincing me by uh, having a bigger title um, or uh, being from a better university, but you convince me by showing me. You can show me the data, show me the techniques, tell me what you did. Um, if it was sound, um, then I can be convinced. And if it wasn't, then I can counter argue that you did X wrong or you should have done Y. And, and that's how we progress. Um, I guess open science is a reaction to the reprodu reproducibility crisis where we figured out that a lot of research actually isn't reproducible because we have lots of incentives to cheat along the way or to be not as rigorous as we maybe should have been. Um, and that's presumably started in psychology, although it might uh, well have started somewhere else and then moved on to psychology. But I'm pretty sure that if we would ever do a really big replications um, a program for communication science, we'll also find out that lots of our key papers are not reproducible, not because we're all crooks, um, but simply because um, it's too hard to get something published that's negative, it's too hard to get reproductions published, and it's too easy to get something published if it seems to be sort of spectacular and have lots of little stars next to the numbers in your regression tables. So where does that move us to computational science, right? I guess that's where the question leads. Um, in computational science, it is both maybe easier to be totally open and more necessary. Um, so if you're doing a survey, um, then you can never, I can never totally reproduce your study, right? I can't go back to the same people and ask them the same questions. And even if I would, they would probably give me a different answer. Um, and in many cases, you can't even give me your raw data because it has lots of uh, privacy problems uh, to give me the raw survey data. So the best I can get um, is anonymized data. But in many cases, it also needs to be aggregated to make sure that you, it can't be disambiguated, uh, dis, uh, de-anonymized. So 
in computational social science, if I use an open data set like Twitter or a newspaper archive um, or some other data that's out there on the internet, um, I can give you the full script that starts from downloading the data, goes down to making my measurements, to doing my analyses, to producing my figures, and you can one-on-one -on -one reproduce uh, my full analysis. But that's but that's only half the truth, isn't it? I mean, if Probably, if we a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's all about numbers, though. Uh, <laughs> you, you mentioned the, the EU guidelines and laws that allow us as researchers, for example, to nowadays collect the data, but they don't necessarily allow us to share the data. And you knowingly just mentioned that we can share the script that downloads the data and then runs the analysis. But if I collect the same tweets that you collected two years ago, there might have been some deletions in between. Twitter might have changed its API, so I cannot probably get the same data as well. So is it really easier to be open scientifically uh, speaking in, in computational communication science? P partly. I totally agree that that's probably 80% of our data is not open, right? Um, and it can't be open either for privacy reasons or for copyright or, or proprietary um, data reasons. And that is a big problem. Part of it might be solvable. So uh, for something like Twitter, uh, the law could change that would allow us to actually archive and share those data under certain conditions. Um, the same for probably newspaper archives. Um, but part of it is not solvable, right? So if I get the, the, the browser history of my respondents, I will never be allowed to share those because those can be, contain extremely intimate details. And even worse, if you, for example, get somebody's WhatsApp logs, I, I don't think I would want my WhatsApp logs or my signal logs to be shared publicly. So those can never be shared. Um, and that means that this whole open science can only start from step two. I think what is different between computational science and a lot of sort of traditional social science methodology is that a lot of interesting stuff still happens um, from step two, right? So um, when we do measurements, when we do, for example, a machine learning model or a dictionary analysis or some um, uh, network analysis, there are an ex extremely large amount of choices that we still need to make in terms of pre-processing, in terms of hyperparameters, in terms of how to set it up. And all those choices can really meaningfully impact our work just just like how your substantive analysis, what kind of model you run, how to, to configure your model can make can have those effects. So um, for computational science, in a way, it's even more important that I can rerun your measurements um, because there's lots of choices there. And if I make those choices differently, I would like to see whether your measurements still hold up. And, and in a way, what we see now in, in, in classical methodology is this, this idea of just combining all possible models that you think might be theoretically relevant and and not just presenting the results of one model, but presenting the, the results of 20 different models that are all theoretically um, acceptable and seeing how many of those models give you the results um, that, that match your hypotheses to at least give an idea of, of how the model affect, the modeling choices affect the outcomes. And that's probably something we should take seriously in the computational part of our studies as well. Absolutely, I agree. But it's really easier if I compare it to what I knew, for example, when I was a student, right, is that we already work with software that kind of already forces us anyways to make a reproducible research. Even students, even when stu if students do computational communication science projects, right, so they, they cannot click uh, things together, they need to document it anyways. And this might be as well an easier part then. Right, yes, yeah, so using more advanced computational 
methods often indeed makes it easier to to also make it do it in a reproducible way in that you don't have an SPSS graphical user interface where you can click on buttons. Probably in 20 years, we might have a graphical uh, interface for doing R and this, this effect will be lost again, right? Because 50 years ago, SPSS didn't have a graphical interface. Oh yeah, that's true, right? You are right. Yeah, <laughs> so the, the old folks in our fields all and were totally I, I used to writing syntax. I do know these people, yes, who can write really fast, really impressive skill, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, on the other hand, so what's often not thought that well is, is actually that you also, you, you need to save the data or at least the data at some step in your analysis along with your scripts. And very often also, if you use version three of a package on our version four using um, maybe this computer, somebody else running it in a different software version on a different R version on a different computer architecture might just get different results, which is, I guess, a problem from a validity perspective in any case. Um, and I guess that also shows the difference between reproducibility and replicability. The basic should be that we should, if possible, a scholar should publish everything we need to reproduce the exact figures from their work. And then we can start from there to see how different choices or different architectures or different software choices um, could make a difference. Does that answer your question, Amesha? Because I'm not totally sure. It, it does, yes, it does. Okay, very um, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, maybe maybe it is not about only about quite technical things. It's about a, a new culture, right? In understanding what is a scientific result? How do we deal with mistakes or, or things that needs a revision, for example, right? How do we yeah, think about people who might point out mistakes and so on? So I think this is a cultural debate as well in, in not yeah, only totally. in communication science. In a way, it should be a badge of honor um, if some famous professor points out that there are mistakes in your article, because it meant that he took your article seriously enough to actually go look at the uh, at what's going on. But that's not how it feels now, right? Now, if there's anything wrong with an article, you might have to retract it. Um, and that's sort of shameful to have to retract your article. Um, and in a way, it's much easier to just not publish the data and not publish the scripts because, um, hey, the article was accepted. It takes effort to, to actually put make the data into a publishable form. And you run a risk, indeed, of people pointing out that, hey, you made a mistake there. You did something wrong there. And that requires a culture change, which hopefully is forthcoming. But on the other hand, there's also maybe even more pressure on, on young scholars nowadays than there was 20 years ago. And that pressure might translate itself into even less resources for making the data accessible and documented, and maybe even more pressure on, on cutting corners if needed to get it out uh, and not get caught doing something wrong. It seems as if we are at a, a point where two different well cultures or generations kind of collide. Um, the younger generations in the field that need to learn and apply and implement um, these these different perspectives, techniques, uh, technologies even, and then um, a more established generation that kind of needs to change and adapt probably, but isn't, I don't know, willing to, or doesn't have the time um, to do so. So maybe this is uh, an issue that pans out over time when younger generations grow older. Yeah, I would hope so. Um, and in a way, I think maybe 30 years ago, it was not normal for somebody to have published 12 articles by the time they get their PhD. And now you actually see people applying for the first grant with, with more than 10 publications on their CV already. 
so that's also a publication culture where if you if you yet you can if you want to publish a lot of articles also good good quality articles i'm not saying anything bad about that but it does mean that if if you're competing against somebody on those terms then it's really hard to actually spend the time on each of those articles to get all the data in the right shape get it published right make sure it's reproducible um go through all these steps um so I think one one thing that would need to change is what we actually expect to see, right? And I think that's what Amesha also meant when you said, what counts as a publication? How do we count publications? Should we be counting publications at all? I guess is a question that's also be asked in a, in a lot of places. Um, and how should we value things like publishing a data set, publishing software, publishing a revision of a data set, uh, publishing version 23 of your software package? Uh, how, how do you compare those to... Yeah getting an article in Journal of Communication. Absolutely, um, you, and I, yeah. I think that's also something that needs to be starting to change from the top because it, it, it might sound weird for young scholars to hear kind of established uh, scholars talk about, well, you should do that and you shouldn't do that. And uh, 10 publications when you apply with your PhD is a lot. But at the same time, if you don't, you compete with... The, so that sounds weird and I agree with you uh, on, on each of these points. So incentives and points in the kind of the um, the system to be it for publications or anything else um, should change probably to some extent evaluation criteria should change but that's nothing that can come from the bottom no probably not unless the bottom organizes better than they are organized now right uh, we probably also labor rights uh, were thought not to to be able to come from the bottom until the, the, the labor actually um, unionized. So of course, I mean, if PhD students um, refuse to publish more than one article a year, and if they uh, all stick to that, then the problem is solved. Um, but that's probably not going to happen any more than, um, than a lot of other things that, that could happen to solve this. So, but I, I see, I see um, communities arising, especially around the topic of computational communication science. I mean, this podcast is, is no exception in that, but there are also other um, com communities arising. There is um, even divisions. You have founded one in, in the large um, associations. So I think there is a lot going on there and it's, it's rather an, a call toward the older generations or the more established generations. Don't mean to be disrespectful in this regard, but uh, it's really just a call to kind of listen and open up to these um, to these movements. Right, but I'm not even sure that's that's necessarily the problem, right? Uh, and the reason you talked about a computational social science hype in the beginning is because uh, there was definitely enough attention for it, and I don't think there's there's any member of the older generation that's going to say, well. Um, if you want to be a good PhD student, don't don't touch these computers. Go to the library and borrow a good book and start reading that. Right? That's not an advice you often get, um, even from maybe a, 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 an emeritus professor. No, no. So no. I don't think the the problem is that that the field in that way is not taken seriously. I mean, of course, there's people that say, well, there's there's all kind of things wrong with computational social science. Um, either on how we handle data or how we um, deal with theory. And they probably all have valid points. And uh, the, this debate also uh, happens within the fields. Um, but I think if you go to the problem of publication pressure and these norms, it is not something that, that is easily solved within a subdiscipline or within one faculty, right? So um, as a university, we could say that we have different guidelines for promotion or for people giving people tenure. But in the end, your external market value is, is what's going to determine where you're going to end up with. 
and that is something that 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 is a culture change and there's probably some social scientists that have uh, a lot of expertise in culture and how to change it but i'm not one of them i'm afraid you're, you're rather providing the means in that for example the, the journal um communication, communication uh, research offers possibilities to to publish your software to publish software yes. reviews right yes yeah, so we do accept uh, tool and software publications we haven't had as many as i had hoped possibly because it is just still difficult to say when is a software a published thing right and that's something we're also struggling with so um, i have a piece of software i worked on since my phd is version 4 going to be a major new publication milestone is version 4.1 going to be one um and I guess the, the the review process is also something that is not very well suited to those kind of publications. So one thing we are uh, we have decided to do with the journal, but I still need to write it down in a newsletter, is to have something we call a software announcements, where uh, we do editorial review of a new software announcement, which could be a new piece of software, a new major version, where we review, hey, the software works as promised, hey, the software looks useful to um, social scientists, but we don't necessarily put it through external review um, because we want to be able to get it out within like a month or something um, so that people can at least have a place that they can point hey there's this software you can use here's a doi here's a, a literature reference um, and at least give people a, a place to put it uh, without necessarily requiring having to go through full peer review which of course also needs to be communicated very clearly in a way i guess that's similar to a book review right absolutely yeah I guess so. And, and of course, this is a good idea because software has other requirements, maybe as a journal article, right? To put it out fast, right? Uh, not to describe it like in a journal article and so on. So it's a kind of a different category. Right. And, and of course, you have great articles like um, I had to work on structural topic models by, by Molly Roberts and Brandon Stewart and others where they have both a new methodology, a new technique and a new piece of software that is perfectly suited for a regular methodological journal article. Um, but not all software is like that. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess that's a wrap up, right? All right, <laughs> about, excellent. <laughs> about everything. Yeah. So, so I, I would just maybe summarize that even though we talked as well about challenges, right? Uh, computational communication science really seems to be an amazing field, amazing times for researchers interested in this field, I would say. And of course, to um, get an idea about what it is and which kind of coding skills um, you need to know one could read your book so as soon as it's out so um, i'm looking forward to this actually very much um yeah thank and you also just that. to say anybody that is interested in the book or considers using it for a course just drop me a line and i will give you advanced access um just send me an email i'll give you a password so you can read the book now um, and hopefully within a month that won't be necessary anymore and it will just be out in the open Thank you very much for having me here. And also thank you very much for organizing this podcast. I think it's a great way to, to again, uh, uh, professionalize the field, make it more accessible and make it better known. So, so thank you for the effort you're putting into this. Thanks. That's, that's the goal anyhow. And we have a list of, of topics that we will discuss in this podcast. However, if you as listeners uh, have additional suggestions for topics that you want us to talk about or also for guests that we should talk to try to uh, invite please drop us a line and provide us with these suggestions questions topics guests that you want us to to talk about okay thank you see you next all time. right thanks thank you very bye. much bye 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 what is it about 
Computational Communication Science.